this morning comes from Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3. It would be helpful for you to follow along in your Bible. And if you don't have one, there should be a blue Bible in front of you. If you're not super familiar with the Bible, Hebrews is very near the back. So if you get to Revelation and just go left a little ways, you'll run into the book of Hebrews. If you're reading from the Pew Bible, it's page 1002. And then a little bit further left from Hebrews is a small book of the Bible, a letter written by the Apostle Paul called Galatians. And we'll be there, chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, page 973. So Hebrews 3, 12 through 15, Galatians 2. So let's stand together as we read God's Word. Beginning with Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12. Take care, brothers. Lest there be any of you, lest there, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Galatians chapter 2 beginning with verse 11. See, Paul recall, the Apostle Paul recalling an event with Peter. But when Peter, or Cephas, came to Antioch, which is a, a town that one of the church, early churches was planted in, I opposed Peter to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas, Paul's good friend, was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? You may be seated, and we'll take a moment to reflect together on God's Word. For several weeks, I've been using this uh, analogy or image that I've wanted you to hold in your mind, and that is of a pole vaulter. And so we're trying to get to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. But like a pole vaulter, you can't just stand and stick your pole in the ground and think you're going to go very far. So 
I felt like it was necessary to have some sort of preliminary uh, sermons that help set some things in place. So as we get to the Sermon on the Mount, we we have some better understanding of who we are, better understanding today of the help that we're going to need. But I know that some of you are thinking, we're never actually going to arrive at the Sermon on the Mount. We are just going to keep running down a long runway. And I'm here to give you good news today. That, that next week we'll be in Matthew chapter 4, and we'll talk about what Jesus says right before he preaches the Sermon on the Mount. So that's one thing I want to say as a preliminary mark. A second thing I want to say is that uh, last week I, I said that the sermon took some, some extra hard listening, and this week you can relax. It's just normal hard listening today. No, no extra hard Listening, because I'm just going to focus in really on these three words, and it's going to be our point of application. Comes from verse 13 in Hebrews to exhort one another every day. So we're going to talk about the verse before we get there, but then that's really our point of application. That's the place that we're going to go to. Uh, And the reason I think that this phrase is so important to have fixed in our mind is because the 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 content of Jesus's Sermon on the Mount. Uh, requires the listener to have a significant amount of self-examination. So when Jesus delivers the Sermon on the Mount, it will cause you to have a lot of self-examination because Jesus is going to he's going to address these following areas, and you may or may not be familiar with any of these areas: anger, lust, lying, hypocrisy, revenge. Popularity, material wealth, anxiety, and judging others. I, I'm very familiar with a lot of those things on that list. And, and when we get to those, you're going to say, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm very familiar with that. And, and so when Jesus delivers this sermon, he doesn't intend the sermon to be something that you just listen to on your iPod when you're running. He doesn't intend to be uh, the sermon that you're sort of locked in on your Beats headphones and you just say, oh, wow, okay, that's a sermon. No, it's meant to be done in a community because self-examination, and this is the title of the sermon, is intended to be a community project. Let me say that again. Self-examination is intended to be a community project, meaning you cannot see yourself accurately. I hate to break that news to you. But, but when you woke up this morning and you saw yourself in the mirror, that wasn't the same picture that everyone else gets of you. There may be some similarities, but there's quite a few differences, especially not with your physical appearance, but with the condition of your heart. And people can see things about the condition of your heart that you cannot see about yourself. So when Jesus is going to address these different conditions, you aren't a- able to accurately self-diagnose. So it's meant to be a community project. And so 2,000 years ago, when Jesus delivers this sermon, he delivers it to a large crowd, and he anticipates that they're going to go home and they're going to help one another. That's the, that's the focus. And so I want to offer this challenge, not just for today's sermon, but for the whole series, is that you find somebody or some bodies. Now, this might be an, an obvious pick, a, a spouse, a family, or your small group. But if you don't have somebody, you don't have another, 
My challenge is to you to identify that person, communicate to that person, hey, I'm going to be listening to this series of sermons on the Sermon on the Mount from Jesus, and and he's going to dig into my heart and soul. And it may be painful. But I'm not going to sell, I'm not going to be able to accurately see myself. Would you listen and help me? All right. Now, this is a big challenge for some people because they just want to come in. They want to sit in the back and go home and maybe, maybe, or maybe not think about it. Sorry if you're sitting in the back. I'm not saying you're not listening back there. But, you know, I have that tendency just, you know, just sort of sort of in your own little bubble. You sort of just process it all by yourself. If that's not this sermon, that's really not any sermon, but it's it's particularly not this series of sermons. So so here's my challenge and be thinking about it right now. Who am I going to say, dads, this might be a great time just to engage your family. Hey, every week we're going to think through whatever this text is that Jesus is telling you about, and we're going to talk about it. Husbands and wives who, who have trouble finding things to talk about with besides their kid or the house, just say, hey, every week we're going to take some time to think about this. If, you're, if you don't have somebody, identify somebody, would you? And say, I, I need some help. And a great sermon, as great as it may be, is not going to be good enough. I need somebody who knows me in some level, can help me diagnose some things that I see in my life. So if we get to Roman, I mean Hebrews 3, if you were to read through it, which we don't have time to this morning, you would see a certain theme develop in the book of Hebrews. And the writer uh, circles around a, a very specific concern. And his concern here in these three chapters would really make an excellent three-point sermon which I'm not going to deliver to you right now. It's going to feel like I'm getting two sermons for one, but I'm just going to show it to you. And his concern is interesting because it's directly talking to the people who say they follow after Jesus. So if you would say you're in that category, the concern the Hebrew writer has is for you, is for me. And this is his concern. His first concern, if you look back at chapter 2, verse 1, he says this, Therefore, the whole first chapter, he's talked about the supremacy of Christ. And so he says, okay, now that you see the supremacy of Christ, therefore, chapter 2, verse 1, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we, and here's the word, drift. He's just explained the supremacy of Christ in chapter 1, and he's concerned that you hear it, but then you drift. You drift. First point in this three-point sermon from the writer is he's concerned that the people of God start drifting. Now, we understand that. We live here near the ocean or near the river, and you get in the ocean or a river, and you can't always tell that it's really flowing. But if you're in a kayak or you're in a boat and you stop the engine or you stop paddling, guess what you find out? You're still moving. You're drifting in some direction. And, and the writer's saying the same thing. You, you say you believe in the supremacy of Christ, and you get out in the culture, and if you're not moving in a Godward direction, if you think you're just standing still, guess what? You're not standing still. You're drifting. You believe something, but you're really not holding on to it. This word he uses, he says, uh, pay much closer attention. It's really not a great translation, uh, but it's hard to say this in the English. It's maybe better this said this way. 
Super abundantly hold on to what you have, what the truth in your mind. Super abundantly hold on to the truth in your mind. This is the, you got to have the super glue. You got to hold on to it because when you get out in the culture, the culture makes you want to drift, makes you have questions. And the avoiding this drifting is a community project. I love how Peter says this in his last words, Second Peter. That his whole last short little letter is an exhortation to believers. And he says this, I will always remind you of these truths, even though you are firmly established in them. See, I know you're firmly established right now. But I, I'm, I'm, I'm just about ready to leave, and I'm afraid that when I leave, you're going to start drifting. And then he says this is his closing line to his letter. So be on guard so that you will not be carried away. See that same imagery. I'm afraid you're just going to drift away. See, Peter makes such a great coach. Why does Peter make such a great coach? He was right next to Jesus And he started drifting. So he understands. He understands how to say, no, Jesus, I'm rock solid. You're going to have me by your side. And guess what? When pressure comes on, drifting occurs. He understands that. He understands the the tendency to drift. Chapter 3, verse 12, which is what we read, the drifting quickly turns into disbelief. The reference there is to an unbelieving heart. You drift, and then drifting ends ends up or leads to disbelief. The the, the heart that once responded quickly to God's word, another voice comes in. A competing voice. And it's a very similar voice that was heard in Genesis chapter 3. And it begins to say, you know, did God really say that? See, you've drifted, and then you're not really sure it's true, and you start thinking, now, did God really say that? I mean, is that what he really meant by that, or do I need to offer my own interpretation of what he meant? So you drift, and then the drifting leads to to disbelief. Now, this is a, a very easy pattern to see in many places, but maybe the easiest place to see it is for a college student. You're in a routine as a high school student. Your parents are going to church. You're going to church. You're involved in a youth group or FCA or whatever it is. But then you get to college and, and, and you just start to drift. And drifting quickly turns to disbelief. And, and I don't even know what the sad statistic is of how many Christians enter college and then four years later they disbelieve. They, they didn't super abundantly hold the truths of God in their mind. They weren't around people who were helping them do that. So that's, I'm so encouraged by the college students that come here. They said, hey, I need help. I'm not going to be able to do it on my own. I don't want to turn into somebody who disbelieves. And the third point in this sermon here in the opening chapters is disobedience. Chapter 4, verse 6. Since, therefore, it remains for some to enter into it, And those who formerly received the good news failed to enter in because of their disobedience. There's a promised land, but now because of your drifting and your disobedience, or or your drifting, and then it leads to disobedience. 
disbelief and then disobedience. That's the terminating point. And the, the sad the sad illustration that we don't have time to unpack here that the, the writer of Hebrews is using is when the people of God in the Exodus left, left the Exodus or left Egypt. So you're familiar with the story. Uh, they're in slavery. They can't get out. God sends a mediator, Moses, and he brings them out. And he gives them the law, and they, they arrive at the front door of the promised land. So just imagine, just in, in a very short amount of time, I've gone from slavery to the front door of the promised land. And here I am with God. He's done all these incredible things, and I'm just about ready to enter in. And then in Numbers 14, so sad, listen to what the writer says. The Israelites grumbled against Moses and said, now listen, they have a false narrative. If only we had died in Egypt. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land only for us to fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. That's not true. But see, they have a false narrative going. And their false narrative is going to lead them in a bad direction. And this is what they conclude. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? Hey, let's choose a leader that will take us back. I mean, this is such a crushing moment for Moses. Crushing moment for God. Here, I've done all these incredible things. We're right at the front door. The door's open. All we have to do is walk across. And the people of God say, I liked it better back there. Can I find a leader who will affirm what I like to do? And he or she can take me back. Well, yeah, you can do that. So, so this, this pattern develops, and it ends in, in disobedience. You have a false narrative, and you ruin your life by living according to the false narrative. And so this isn't my sermon. This isn't my three-point sermon. It's like an appetizer. Some of you are saying, appetizer's good. Don't, no, no need for the meal. But, but if this was my sermon, what I would ask, is there anyone here that's drifting? I mean, you may not look like you're drifting here. You, you come on Sundays, you show up. But really, you're, you're drifting. You, you somehow, you haven't super abundantly held on to the truths of God. You, you begin to drift and disbelief, doubt has crept in. And now you're saying, you know, I don't know. I mean... The whole Bible thing, there's parts of it I'm not sure of, and maybe I really don't believe it. And you're just adopting a, a new narrative for your life. You've got a, a, a false narrative that you're following after. You've got a, a different construct, another voice, a, a different philosophy that now sort of holds sway in your life, and, and you're drifting. And I would, I would exhort you to take care, as he says, take care unless your unbelieving heart leads you to fall away from the living God. So if you're a drifter here today, please find me. Find someone to, to pray for you, to encourage you, to help you get involved in, in a place that people can help you out with that. So let's zero here on chapter zero in. Now, this is a sermon. This is a transition. Actual sermon here halfway through the time. Just notice the, the same pattern. Uh, it's just a, in microcosm first. Take care. Not again. Not a strong enough translation. This is a this is a neon sign. Watch out. It's not uh, take care. It's no watch out. 
Watch out, something dangerous is happening. You're, you're drifting, you're, you're heading toward the rocks, and you're in danger of shipwrecking your soul. I love this story about a, a true captain who was in the Navy, and he was very proud, and he was heading directly into an oncoming ship. And he signaled, turn around. The other ship signaled out, no, you turn around. (laughs) So he signaled back, the proud captain, no, you must turn around. This is the SSS Poseidon, and I am the great Captain Frank Moran. Finally, the other ship signaled back to the proud captain and said, turn around. This is the lighthouse. You're about to hit the rocks. See, if, if you're, you're free to live your life any way you want, you're not free of hitting the rocks. And, and so the writer here is saying, take care, I'm the lighthouse. You are heading in the wrong direction. And, and you may proudly say, I'm not turning around. You're, you're free to not turn around. You're not free to shipwreck your soul. Because there's only one light to follow. And that light is the person of Jesus Christ. So he says, take care. And then notice the word evil. Something's going to happen. If you don't take care of your soul, evil's going to work its way in. And, and this is the way it happens. You, you subtly give yourself to, to patterns of sin. I mean, you know them. They don't seem like a big deal. But they just sort of work their way in. And because you're a child of God, you have this conscience that goes, okay, I know that's, I, I know that's not good. I shouldn't say that. I shouldn't do that. I shouldn't look at that. I shouldn't be there. And, and you have this conscience and it begins to stir. And you really at this point have two choices. One choice is the best choice. You can, you can repent, you confess, and you run to the ever flowing mercies of God. That, that's, that's always the best choice. But if you started drifting and something you've got a hold of also has a hold of you, you, you say what Paul Tripp says so well, because you don't like an uncomfortable conscience, you erect some system of self-justification that makes that evil acceptable. Beware, you, you are all self-swindlers. See, we, we can't diagnose ourselves very well we're we self-swindle now i used this example before i want to bring it back up and it'll come up in the sermon on the mount with and now we could use many but let's just think about anger think about how often you self-swindle in anger uh pastor paul i'm not angry i'm truthful people don't like the truth okay probably need help in your self-diagnosis or uh, you'd be angry, too, if you lived with my spouse or my kids or had my boss. So self-justification. I mean, I am angry, but really it's the problem is outside of me. If everything in the world, whatever it is, would shape up, I, hey, I wouldn't have a problem with anger. Or I'm tired, I'm hungry, I'm stressed out, so it's okay if I'm angry. I'm not angry. People are just too sensitive. <laughs> Uh, or I'm not angry. People are just stupid. I mean, that's the problem. I got a lot of stupid people around me. I'm not, I mean, I'm really not. An, I'm a jovial guy, except for when I get around these stupid people. You see, you self-swindle. This, the reason you're laughing is you've done it. 
I'm pointing at everybody, not just one person. You, I've done it. This is so easy, so recognizable. When I, when I talked about anger a couple of weeks ago, I, we were, I was talking about this to somebody else who said it was okay if I said this. They said, you know, you started talking about angry. I was getting angry at you for talking about it. I was like, uh, lighthouse, lighthouse. I mean, you're headed for the rocks. But it was a way of saying, I, I've self-diagnosed, I, but I need help. I need outside help with this. Would, would somebody come and, and help me? Because if not, I'm just going to self-swindle. Okay, so, so now we have arrived finally at, at this application point. If you can't accurately diagnose, if you say, okay, yes, I am a self-swindler, then, then what help does this passage offer that person? And the primary help it offers is this phrase, uh, one another. See this in verse 13. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, so, so that you're not hardened by the deceitful sin. You're, you're exhort, you've, got, you've got another, and you're exhorting, you're, you're encouraging, you're, you're helping people to see themselves, you're helping them move in a Godward direction. And this phrase, one another, is very popular through the New Testament. It's a, it's a very key element in your spiritual formation. It's not something that's just meant to be done alone. Done alone. It's meant to be something as a community project. And probably the most well-known of these one another verses, John 13, Jesus says, a new command I give to you, love Love one another. See, the way people are going to see that you're my disciples is if a bunch of random people get together who have different skin color and different socioeconomic you know, backgrounds and different education and different workplaces, and if those people can begin to love one another, then people are going to say, hey, that's not normal. What is the thing that holds them together? It's this loving one another that points people to Jesus. Paul in Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another. So we're helping each other, teaching. We're helping by admonishing, correcting, saying you've gotten off track, you're drifting. Later in the book of Hebrews, let us consider how we may spur one another on. People are falling behind. People are drifting, and somebody else has to come in and be a spur. Come on, this is the way. Remember, this is it. Let's let's super glue ourselves to the truth of the gospel. There are so many outside voices that just seem so dominating and so rich and so worth uh, pursuing. But no, that's not, not true. I don't want to live by that false narrative, and we're supposed to spur one another on. Now, I want to just see how this practically plays out in a real event in the bible how this one anothering corrects and that's where i want us to turn to galatians chapter 2 verse 11 through 14 just for us to have some context here on this closing illustration uh, this is a big confrontation this is um this is the epic battle the apostle peter and the Apostle Paul. I mean, you just cannot in the New Testament get two more powerful figures. This is the, the person that Jesus said, I'm a, Peter, I'm going to use you and, and your confession. And I'm going to be building my church through you and your confession. And, and then the Apostle Paul, you're going to be the apostle to the Gentiles. And you've got these two people that, 
now they're going to they're going to butt heads. And some people in church history would say this little moment was one of the single biggest moments in church history. Acts chapter 10, Peter, the Jewish apostle who is kosher, he's eating and living according to the Old Testament dietary restrictions, sees this sheet come down. Remember the picture? It happens several times, so he gets the picture. Hey, uh, nothing's unclean now. So all these things that Peter would never eat, now God says, hey, you can eat those things. It's a way of saying I'm breaking down a barrier here between Jew and Gentile. And food was one of those barriers. And so it was a very unusual situation. Then he gets a call to go to a Roman soldier's house, who is a Gentile, and he preaches the gospel to a guy named uh, Cornelius. And Cornelius believes. And, and this is huge event that, wow, everybody's coming in through the power of the Holy Spirit. It's not Jew-Gentile anymore. And so uh, when sometime later, Peter travels to this church called Antioch, which is a multiracial, multicultural church. And he's having a meal with the Gentiles. This is not a big surprise. He's done this many times, and now he's having a meal with these Gentiles. In that time, in that time it was a very intimate kind of uh, thing that you would have a meal with somebody. And then notice what it says here. Certain men arrive on the scene. And I would say certain powerful men, certain influential men, certain men from Jerusalem. That means from James. James was the head of the church in Jerusalem. So certain powerful men have come from Jerusalem. And then I just find this very, Peter's reaction very surprising. Peter was afraid. Peter was afraid. Afraid. Afraid of being judged, of being criticized, left out of the powerful, popular group. I mean, we're not sure why he was afraid, but what happens is when he got afraid, he started believing a false narrative. And then that false narrative began to drive his actions. And he left eating with the Gentiles and said, no, 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 I can't do that. I can just only eat with the Jews. The, the false narrative was so strong that other people got caught up in his false narrative. So now that even Paul's best friend, Barnabas, is caught up in the false narrative. Now, what rescues Peter from this spiral? And the answer is one another. What rescues Peter from the spiral is someone else comes in. And that someone else that comes in is the Apostle Paul. Now, I want you to think carefully about being the Apostle Paul here. What, what are the possible dynamics? You know, emotional maturity is defined as someone who can read a room. And you've seen somebody who's not good at this, right? You don't have to punch your neighbor. We know. They just don't understand the dynamics in the room. But an emotional mature person comes in. They understand there's all kinds of forces here. And Paul understands there's all kinds of forces. We've got, we got the unity of the church on the line here. We've got a, a big potential for racial and ethnic tensions to divide the church. We, we've got a close friendship with Barnabas that's on the line. We've got Peter versus Paul on the line. 
We've got old power structures that need to be broken down. There's all kinds of dynamics that are happening in this, con- in this conversation. And the reason I'm pointing this out is when somebody addresses you or you address somebody else, there's all kinds of things that are weighing in on that conversation. It's not just one thing. There's all kinds of things happening. And I just love how Paul approaches verse 14 of all the things he could say. Peter, you're, you've led my friend astray. Peter, you're creating disunity. Peter, you, you did this in Acts chapter 10. I mean, there's all kinds of things he can say. And look what he says. Your conduct is not in step with or in line with the gospel. Peter, you've gotten a quarter of an inch off. And if you keep going this way, there's going to be a massive split. He doesn't make it about him. Paul doesn't make it about himself. He doesn't make it about other people. He doesn't make it about race. He doesn't make it about his friend. He doesn't make it about Peter. He makes it about the gospel. The gospel is at stake in your conduct, Peter. And see, when we're helping one another, we need to make sure you're telling somebody you need to change for the gospel. Not just for yourself, not just for our marriage, but it's the gospel at stake. We're, we're going out and we're trying to shine like stars in the universe. And if you have this constant problem with lust or anger or material wealth or whatever it is, the gospel's being blocked from really being seen in its glory. And so that's how Peter addresses Paul. Peter has a false narrative. And a strong man has to come in and say, Peter, you got a false narrative. You're... You're leading people astray. See, see, this self-examination is a community project, even for the leader. See, no one is immune. No pastor, no elder, no small group leader, nobody's immune from needing a community to come around and help and examine the heart So here's my question. Do you have someone that can help you see yourself? Do you have someone who can come to you face-to-face with care, grace, mercy, truth, and say, you're not living in line with the gospel? If you do have someone like that, never despise that relationship. See, you might say, well, I've got somebody great. But when they point it out, you don't like that person that much. I don't like that person. Oh, they were my friend, but, you know, they pointed some bad things out, and now they're they're kind of distant. See, if you have a spouse like that, never despise that spouse. If you have a friend like that, if you have a group of people like that, and they come to you, never despise that. This is the way it was designed. If you don't have that, you're in danger of shipwrecking your soul. You're in danger of being the proud captain to say, hey, you turn around. And you're free to live that way. You're not free from the consequences of wrecking on the rocks and destroying your soul. So my encouragement, if you need help, if you need somebody to pray for you, you're drifting, please, you can find me after the service or somebody else. If you need some kind of community, Sam is the best person to start with to say hey i'm a person in this in great need can you help me out find this community for me who somebody or people who can walk through this situation and help me as i try to examine myself correctly i'm going to need outside help
Okay? Let's pray together. Lord, uh, this morning.